Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two for today. In moments, the Australian journalist Jeff Sparrow will talk about the fires plaguing that country. And at the bottom of the hour, the sociologist Stuart Schrader will talk about the two-way relationship between counterinsurgency abroad and policing at home. Australia is ablaze on a mind-boggling scale. Why? How bad? And what's the political reaction been? Here to explain is Jeff Sparrow, a writer, editor, and broadcaster based in Sydney. He was on this show last May to discuss the rights victory and the Australian election. I was in Sydney four or five years ago, and uh, there were what seemed then to be routine fires. You'd look up in the sky, it would be orange, but everybody kind of shrugged. It was a normal thing. This is like a, a whole new level of conflagration, right? Yeah, so there's normally a fire season, but if you live in a big city, that doesn't impinge on your life very much now. But, I mean, these, these fires started in September, so it wasn't even summer. Um, and the intensity of them has just been insane. So it's, it's areas that have never burned previously are now being incinerated. Towns that people had thought would always be safe have been, you know, turned into disaster areas. So it, it's longer, it's more intense they're all still burning, and what? It's only the start of January, so the traditional fire season would go to February. How many people are displaced? What kind of scale of, of uh, distress are we talking about here? So the current death toll is twenty-four people. Something like two thousand homes have been destroyed. We're talking about some a vast, a vast area. That's one of the one of the aspects that makes it so extraordinary. We're not talking about a single state. We are talking about all over the place, places that previously have been thought entirely safe are now burning. Australia has always been a very dry place, right, and pretty hot place uh, in the summer. So that uh, laid the groundwork for this uh, this uh, new level of disaster. Yeah, so Australia is often described as the driest continent in, in the world, and fire has been a traditional part of the Australian ecosystem. Indigenous people use fire as a, as a um, management tool, but what that has meant is that it's a, a continent particularly prone to the effects of climate change. And of course, the various scientific bodies have been warning for a decade or so that one of the ways climate will manifest in Australia is that the fire season will get longer, will become more intense. I mean, one of the reports that, that um, people have, have dug up again and circulating specifically said by 2020, the effects of climate change on bushfires will be readily apparent. And so it turned out to be. In, in a sense, these fires are are on one hand unprecedented, but they're also entirely predicted. Our countries uh, have a lot in common. You, like us, have a lot of... Uh, Both the, the worst parts. Yes. the worst parts in common. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, there are some parts I like that I think we have in common, too. There's, <laughs> yeah. you know, a friendliness and informality, a kind of instinctive democracy, all that sort of thing. I, that, I like that part. And I liked Australia, my two visits to it. So I, I, had, I do have a fondness for your burning country. But we both have a very large quantity of climate-denying yahoos, right? Yeah, so climate politics in this country has been incredibly toxic for a long time and climate is now a central part of Australian culture war ever since um, a previous Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, who was, uh, uh, he, in fact, just a couple of days ago, he there was a report that, that Abbott, who's now out of politics, it gave a um, interview in an Israeli radio station where he said that climate change was a fraud. He was an out-and-out denial denialist and he, he weaponized climate change to destroy um, a number of uh, labor administrations. So since then, uh, climate change has been totally toxic. We have a situation now where the, the ruling um, Liberal Party 
is still dominated by denialist um, sentiment. Scott Morrison, who's the Prime Minister, uh, is very close to the coal industry, famously took a lump of coal into Parliament and waved it around at, at, at one stage. At the same time, of course, the opposition Labor Party, while not as extreme in its rhetoric, is also overtly supportive of the coal industry, which is uh, a central part of the Australian economy. So both parties are very cagey about what they will promise about climate change. And in terms of mainstream climate politics, even the better politicians will talk about reducing Australian emissions. But of course, Australia's real contribution to, to global warming is primarily in terms of um, the export of, export of coal around the world. And I think uh, the statistics have us, we are the third biggest contributor to um, to carbon pollution behind Russia and Saudi Arabia, if you count, um, uh, in terms of um, exports. But that's not part of the... That's not part of the debate. So, you're now developing this gigantic coal mine, right? Yeah. So, so the Indian multinational Adani wants to um, develop this uh, Carmichael coal mine in Queensland, not very far from the Great Barrier Reef, which, not coincidentally, is in a, a parlous state. The Adani became a big issue in the um, the federal election earlier this year, and um, the Liberal Party attributed its surprise win partly to championing Adani and the jobs that it was ostensibly supposed to uh, bring. And the other thing people should be aware of, of Adani, it, it, it's kind of a, um, a Trojan horse for a whole series of other extractive projects. Uh, it will open up a whole region to um, coal and gas mining. So we have this extraordinary juxtaposition that Australia is on fire from blazes that are clearly linked to climate change at the same time. Australia is thoroughly committed to wringing the last amount of carbon out of the soil that it's possible to do so. Curiously, uh, the Adani fellow is a close friend, an associate of uh, Narendra Modi in India. That's right. And of course, all of these characters hang together. Part of the political crisis that's developing for Prime Minister Scott Morrison at the moment is when the fires uh, really peaked in December, he was nowhere to be found. He was off on a beach in Hawaii um, having a holiday as you know, most of the country was on fire. One of the reasons why he scheduled his holiday at that particular time, his apologist said, was because he was due in January to make a trip to India. And of course, part of that trip was to... Um, facilitate more coal exports to India. That's the kind of politics that um, we are dealing with, That a, a government that is still tremendously committed to exporting um, carbon all over the world. How big an interest is it, economically speaking? How much employment, how much, how much of Australian ex exports are accounted for by the, uh, the carbon uh, sector? It's a very fraught topic because, of course, the promise that was made in the election was that um, Adani was a source of, of, of jobs. And uh, in some ways, I think it's a debate not unlike the one that you guys are having in America. A lot of the regions that um, are susceptible to this rhetoric are former industrial towns that are um, on the decline. And coal mining seems to be the, um, the only um, opportunity that they have. But of course, mining is a sector that is increasingly um, uh, mechanised. So the amount of jobs that are actually in that industry are it's by no means clear that there'll be anything like the um, the amount that are being promised. And at the, same, at the same time, you know, 
Uh, coincidentally, Australia had just launched a, a new tourism campaign in the United Kingdom just before these fires really took off, you know, showing, you know, Kylie, the pop singer Kylie Minogue and others frolicking on pristine Australian beaches. And by the time this was being shown in England, all the f***ing beaches were on fire. So, you know, <laughs> there is this kind of – there is this contrast between – the reliance on, um, on on coal and the kind of image that Australia has of itself, and the one that it sort of sells to um, sells to tourists, and that's before you even start to talk about the economic effects of this of these fires, which no one really knows yet, but they are going to be extraordinary. I mean, vast sections of the country now are essentially unviable. It's going to be it's very difficult to see how some of these towns will be re-established because, um, as you said before, the fire season happens every year as the temperature increases. The fire season will become incredibly dangerous year after year. So what will happen to these regions is by no means clear. So what's daily life like in Sydney now? Can you go about your business normally or is it completely disrupted? Yeah, look, today's not not too bad, but for uh, the course of um, over a month, um, Sydney has been choked by acrid smoke that's been um, produced by World Heritage for, um, forests going up in flames. And so... I think at the moment the city that's most affected is Canberra and that um, the pollution levels in the smoke uh, in the air in Canberra are some of the worst in the world at the moment. So it, it's been a really a real eye-opener about the way climate change will actually affect the poorest and working-class areas. So, so we had in Western Sydney the temperature was 49 degrees a couple of days ago. You imagine what it's like for people who can't afford air conditioning, for people who have to work outside in this choking, thick yellow smoke at 49 degrees. So, you know, doctors are saying that it's the equivalent of smoking, you know, 30 cigarettes a day. What happens down the track? How many people are going to get um, uh, lung infections and so on? At the, for the past few weeks walking around Sydney, um, you'll see people wearing masks. Every second person you know has some sort of cold or respiratory um, infection. And this smoke, of course, is now being... Um, experienced in New Zealand. So, you know, like the scale of this this disaster is just extraordinary. But I don't know. I mean, I think I feel like this is a point really stressing because really worth stressing because the conservatives will always um, pitch climate change as this abstraction that only sort of the middle class elite cares about. Well, in the context of Australia, the people who are getting burnt out, the people who have to breathe this smoke, you know, or have to work outside in this extraordinary temperatures are working class people and you know the wealthy are like scott morrison having their holidays in hawaii unaffected it's the ordinary people who are suffering because of this i'm speaking with the australian journalist jeff sparrow that is a mystery of the, the climate change politics though because you know the rich people can avoid it up to a point but they can't forever when do they ever start thinking about what this means to their own lives I mean, or they just think they can insulate themselves forever do you have any sense of the psychology of, of this kind of denialism the question of the, the, the psychology of it has been really interesting because Morrison's response to the politics of this has been so inept, tweeting out um, comments about the cricket as, you know, as the country is on, on, um, on fire, being a whole, but having photos of him circulating on a beach in Hawaii, you know, in a Hawaiian shirt, drinking a beer as, you know, the country goes up and so I, I think one of the things that happened is because the coalition built so much of its politics on climate denial they then cannot face up to the symptoms of a climate emergency which in this case manifests through a bushfire so there's been a sense amongst a lot of people on the right to even acknowledge the severity of the disaster is, is in some way to grant ground to the left so the right's response to this so far has been 
kind of divided there are a lot of people on the right who have been saying well actually the disaster isn't that bad and then from that they're now pivoting to say yes the disaster is terrible but it's the fault of the greens so the argument that's that, that that's being circulated and you see this all over you know facebook in various boomer memes is that the the disaster has been exacerbated because the greens have refused to allow people to do hazard reduction burning Oh, yeah, that's the same idiotic thing that Trump says about the California fire. Yeah, 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 totally. I think with Trump's one was about raking the forest, wasn't it? It's, yeah. It's, it's along, along those kind of um, lines. And it's absolute nonsense. And, you know, obviously the Greens aren't in power anywhere, but it's it sort of taps into this psychology that the that A, climate change doesn't um, exist, and B, the government telling me what to do is the real problem. So, you know, any kind of environmental restrictions in the country, that's the real kind of issue and the politics at the moment are really in flux i think and it remains to be seen how this will kind of play it i mean it's still you know it's still very early in the year and in some senses it's still kind of the silly season so far as politics is concerned except for these bushfires everywhere so how exactly this will shake out it remains to be seen but certainly it does seem at this stage that um, morrison's authority has totally collapsed i mean there's been extraordinary scenes of him trying to visit some of these burnt out towns and just being showered with abuse by ordinary people where have you been why are you allowing this to happen yeah at the same time a friend of mine on facebook uh brazilian but teaching in australia for a number of years said uh, that uh, there was some muscle car competition going on in canberra as the city was choked in fumes this, this is the psychology of like a good chunk of the Australian population. I think one of the problems is that it's very difficult for people to know exactly what to do. I mean, this is the problem with climate change politics as a whole because it's such a huge problem and because uh, genuine solutions require global change. It's very difficult to turn the anger into um, an immediate campaign. Now, that may be changing a little bit in Australia because there are sort of concrete issues arising around the bushfires in terms of the fire services have been underfunded for a, a long time. Um, these towns that have been devastated will need reconstruction um, programs and they're very unlikely to be a priority for the government because they're mostly poor areas or whatever. So it, it sort of opens up some practical demands for the left that can perhaps be connected with the broader issues about um, climate change and ending Australia's reliance on um, fossil fuels. But in terms of how that impacts on mainstream Australian political sentiment, it's, it's difficult to tell at the moment. That, I mean, the perception is that the Morrison government is in crisis, that there, there is a fissure opening up between the federal government and the New South Wales government, who are both conservatives, but they're now each trying to throw the other under the bus as to who's at, who was at fault. Do you rebuild these burned communities? You're just going to burn again in nine or ten months? Yeah, so this is a discussion that hasn't even really been had yet. If this is the new normal, which it, it, it seems to be, so 2019 was the hottest year ever recorded in Australia, in Australia had two of the hottest days ever recorded. But, you know, um, temperatures are set to keep on rising. So I think real questions will have to be asked about the viability of the way that Australians live in Australia. I mean, if you want to go dig really deep, um, Australia is a colonial settler state, and some of these issues about the relationship to nature and to fires go right back to the way that 
colonialism has reshaped the natural landscape. I think it is going to be a real question as to whether some of these towns will be viable. And again, and there's probably some parallel with the United States here, but in the Australian national psyche, the outback of the bush is tremendously important. Most people don't actually go there or live there, but they have this sense of themselves as, you know, living on the rugged frontier or whatever. To see such vast areas of the countryside incinerated, something like half a billion animals, I think is the the figure that they're quoting at the moment, being destroyed. How that is going to shake out, I, I think is really unclear, but it's, it's difficult to believe that it won't have quite a profound effect. The friend of mine who uh, posted about the muscle car competition in uh, Canberra uh, also pointed to this macho psychology behind a lot of uh, climate denialism that, uh, you know, you have to dig for coal and have a big fat car because somewhere some gender ambiguous person is riding an electric scooter. How important is that in the politics of a climate issue? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that is a really interesting point. And I think it it is perhaps connected to the way that right wing politics is now cohering in the wake of the bushfires around this antagonism towards the Greens. I mean, in terms of a talking point, it's a kind of crazy nonsensical one, but it does channel that real – I mean, fascist is maybe too strong, but it it has that kind of um, angry antagonism that the way to respond to climate change is to attack these middle-class wankers. You see what I mean? So the, the anger of the, the, the climate denialists, these mostly older, mostly white people towards environmentalists is quite extraordinary. So there's not, not so much a sort of sense that, well, there's something to learn from these people. It's that these are the people who are responsible for um, my country burning. And you can see, I think, the contours of a quite nasty uh, far-right politics emerging around climate denialism. I mean, you know, this is, Naomi Klein's been talking about, you know, eco-barbarism. And, you know, after the Christchurch massacre, there's been some discussion about eco-fascism. I think you – and I'm not trying to suggest that this is an imminent concern in Australia because it's not, not at all. But you can sort of see how this sentiment might emerge in the degree of anger that's, that, 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 that is in those sort of – those Facebook posts, this sense that – we must defend our traditional way of life against the people saying that climate change means that um, we have to change in some way. If this happens every year now, in, in five years of this, I mean, what what would the result of that be? The physical environment, the social environment, the politics, it's just hard to even begin thinking about. I guess you're, you're kind of an experimental uh, uh, re- region for the rest of the world now. You're at the, the forefront there. So, uh, you know, we've had it in California, but not, not as extreme as what you've had. Of course, the Amazon is burning, but that's intentional. Where is this going to go over the next few years? These things don't progress in a linear fashion. So, you know, maybe next year we'll be okay. Who, who, who knows? I mean, so we're talking about longer term trends, then yes, this does seem to be um, the new normal. But I mean, it's something people here have been thinking about a lot. And I think that um, I think it's really important for people on the left to realize that there is no disaster that will mobilize people in and of itself. So, you know, we thought here when scientists started to say that the, the Great Barrier Reef was in decline and may in fact die if climate change wasn't addressed, we thought that that might you know, stir people. He's one of the greatest natural wonders of the world and it's dying. Nothing. Crickets. Well, 
I think it's the same with even something as extreme as these fires in lieu of a social movement, in lieu of some sort of organized response. People just adapt and, you know, the bush will grow back in some way, shape or form. It won't look anything like it did. It won't have the kind of ecological diversity. Probably won't, won't be a very nice place to to visit if you've got the money you'll probably be able to visit nice places if you don't you'll just be used to living in a place where there's lots of smoke there's lots of pollution it's really hot and unpleasant but that's how a lot of people live in the third world as it is you know so it seems to me it's like it it will just be a way just be a, a, a question of people's expectations being re focused into a a a slightly kind of future that's what things are going to look like, I reckon. Now, I never thought that disaster is a very motivating, politically motivating uh, thing. I think it often makes people just long for the old way of doing things and makes them defensive and nostalgic. But is there anything like you know, what the proposal of a Green New Deal here? Has there been anything, any kind of politics like that in Australia, or, or is it just not happening? Well, I mean, I think the last time you and I chatted was in the wake of the Australian uh, election and the, the the liberal victory that brought Scott Morrison well, that 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 means that he's in power. Kind of shattered a lot of momentum around climate change and established this kind of common sense in you know mainstream um, journalism that ordinary people were hostile to climate action. Now that was never kind of true. I mean, there were three hundred thousand people who marched here on the um, student strike, so there's clearly a lot of sentiment around it, and that sentiment has um, well obviously grown massively in response to the fires. But so far. In terms of the mainstream, there's been very little um, in the way of a concrete proposal, anything like something like the, the Green New Deal. You would like to think that the response to these fires will open up possibilities um, for that. In some ways, it feels like a little bit of an inchoate situation. There's a, a round of demonstrations that have been called um, in response to the fires, and it'll be interesting to see how many people those mobilise. But as yet... Um, there's been a um, a series of kind of climate actions over the over the last year that have been met with extreme repression, um, and the the government has introduced a whole series of new laws directly intended to prevent people from from protesting around climate. So how this will develop, I think, is really really up in the air. And I think that that goes a long way to answering your previous question. The, the way people think about climate change and the alternatives to it, I think, will depend a great deal on the extent to which the left is able to offer at least some gesture towards the possibility of a better future. Because if we can't do that, and I think people will just sullenly sort of accept this is the new normal. You know, my country burns all the time and no one does anything about it. That's just the way things are. That was Jeff Sparrow, a Sydney-based writer, editor and broadcaster. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
How is some of the threnody for the victims of Hiroshima, performed by the National Polish Radio Symphony Orchestra under Antoni Witt? Next, cops and counterinsurgency. We hear a lot about the militarization of policing, as if it were a recent thing, but it has deep roots. Back in the 1960s, policing was an important part of the national security state's fight against the communist threat, and the lessons learned abroad were applied at home. That relationship is the topic of Stuart Schrader's new book, Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing, from the University of California Press. Schrader is a lecturer at Johns Hopkins and is associate director of the university's program in racism, immigration, and citizenship. Stuart Schrader. First, a a definition. Counterinsurgency. What does that mean? Counterinsurgency is a term that is contested, and it's always been contested, even though the term never really seems to go away. The debate around it also never goes away. I use the term because I'm mostly talking about the 1960s in the book. And in the 1960s, that was when the term was first widely adopted. It probably appeared at the very end of the 1950s. The Kennedy administration adopted it and created a body that I talk about in the book called the Special Group on Counterinsurgency, which was a sort of high-level body adjacent to the National Security Council that was in charge of gathering together and coordinating resources for the purpose of preventing communist revolution around the globe. They didn't want to call it counter-revolution because there was some debate among intellectuals and security people and policymakers about whether the United States should always be in opposition to revolution. Well, they're also like Rostow and such. We're talking about a kind of capitalist revolution exactly. to counter the communist that, revolution. That right? was, that and they was, were trying to control the horse of modernization. Exactly. That was, that was the exact problem, which was why they didn't want to say they were counter-revolutionary, because they thought that there was a possibility of fostering capitalist revolution in places that were underdeveloped or in need of greater capitalist market share and so forth. Insurgency, on the other hand, seemed like it was necessarily negative. So when they talked about counterinsurgency, it meant preventing communist or nationalist revolutions. They wanted to prevent subversion, which could take the form of basically low-level criminal activity, like writing graffiti of political slogans, to more militant guerrilla warfare activity. And so when they said counterinsurgency, they were trying to make sure that they were encompassing as wide a range of security threats as possible, and they were mobilizing resources for preventing insurgency that entailed both a sort of positive developmentalist aspect and a more restrictive security aspect. And and counterinsurgency meant putting those two together and, as I argue in the book, putting police at the center of this project of preventing revolution. And ultimately, the special group on counterinsurgency that the Kennedy administration founded took under its purview dozens of countries across the third world where the United States marshaled these resources to help make sure that communist revolutionaries didn't gain control or over the government, let alone have um, notable political influence. So that would be targeted at trade unions, student groups, intellectuals, the, the whole kind of gamut of typical targets for anti-communist activity, um, as well as the 
peasants and poor people who were thought to be most susceptible to the sort of in political entreaties of political militants. Now, of course, as you said, uh, police or the deployment of police or the training of police were, were, were central to uh, this agenda. For the Cold War purposes, it was important for the police to appear non-racial. Of course, American policing has a long history very tied up with race. How did they square that circle? It was a difficult challenge for them. On the one hand, a lot of the people that I talk about in Badges Without Borders were police professionals who we could call racial liberals. They had a sense that racism was a problem, that it undermined the legitimacy of policing. At the same time, they were deep believers in the project of policing as which they they would you know they would kind of use catchphrases to describe that project from the familiar thin blue line type of imagery to the phrase that that I use a lot in the book because these actors used it the the first line of defense they really believed that police created a barrier between a secure civilization and a chaotic or anarchic situation as soon as questions about the failure or decay or decomposition of civilization are put on the table, you find that questions about racial development start creeping back up. So even as a lot of these figures were very cautious about invoking racial difference in explicit terms, their overall framework for how they understood the world couldn't help but reproduce a sort of racial hierarchy on a global scale where there was a developed and civilized world, there were developed and civilized parts of societies, and then there were also these kinds of risk factors and dangers that would potentially undermine everything from the inside out or from the outside in. And so in that way, even though they were cautious and were quite aware of the ways that police racism undermined their own legitimacy, they couldn't quite break out of the, the overall framework of thinking about the world in these hierarchical, often binary terms. Just by the nature of their job, much of their job is policing racialized communities and, uh, yeah. and racialized hierarchies and preserving them. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and within the United States... Over the course of the 20th century, a lot of the transformations in policing were around trying to enable police to maintain those hierarchies while not running afoul of or provoking political radicals who would call them out. For doing what they're doing. Basically. Exactly, yeah. It was an almost impossible task that they set for themselves of trying to figure out a way to maintain the hierarchical racial order while not seeming like they were doing that. When they start applying these modes of governance to other parts of the globe, they take the mindset with them of preserving social hierarchy. But oftentimes other parts of the globe, the, the map that they use based on U.S. racial divisions doesn't quite work. And so they, they come up against all these challenges that ultimately make it so that the United States is not quite as able to seamlessly deploy its policing resources in other parts of the globe to use their techniques and practices that they've been honing for, for decades quite as, as smoothly in other parts of the globe. Okay, so there's a, a group of people within the Kennedy administration, Robert Coomer was one of the principals, right, yeah. who believed that policing was extremely important to the war in Vietnam, 
yeah. you know, and broader, the, more broadly, the struggle against communism. How did uh, they see that role of the cop, and how is that related to the role of the military? There are two factors. One is that military assistance was really expensive and not very well suited for how they understood the threat. So military assistance generally takes the form, and and of course this is still very much true today, military assistance is usually geared toward traditional forms of warfare. So when the United States is giving cannons or tanks or airplanes to other countries, it's mainly to help them defend themselves against foreign invasion by another state. It seems like kind of World War II stuff. Exactly. Conventional armies shooting at each other. Exactly, yeah. And this type of military assistance was continuing throughout the Cold War under the notion that there might be uh, foreign invasions of, of various countries around the globe. But in reality, most of the people in the Kennedy administration pretty certain that that was unlikely. What was more likely, they thought, was, again, this, this form of, of subversion or insurgency usually propagated by political radicals, either infiltrating from, from outside or they were um, cadres developed you know, within, within a country. And so tank would not be all that useful in preventing the shadowy subversive who might be handing out propaganda literature or whatever. What these folks in the Kennedy administration thought, people like Robert Comer, was that if if the threat comes in the form of these shadowy figures who basically don't look any different from everyday people, um, rather than coming in sort of uniform like like an invading army, well, the best people who are going to be able to prevent that threat from manifesting are police officers because they are operating on the streets and they are the ones who have the technical ability and know-how to interfere with or intervene against these types of shadowy threats. Police assistance, ultimately, as the Kennedy administration, when, when the Kennedy administration decides to formalize what has already been a kind of more informal ongoing program beginning under Eisenhower, they end up spending a drop in the bucket on it, even as they extend it to dozens of countries around the globe, as compared to the amount of money that they're spending on airplanes and, and other forms of military assistance. So they're able to make a, an argument to skeptics in Congress about what foreign aid is is useful for, they're able to say, look, foreign aid is useful because it is preventing communist revolution, and this police aid will be under the foreign aid budget because it is ultimately a civilian uh, enterprise rather than a military enterprise. Because, of course, those are two different budgetary authorities in Congress. I'm speaking with Stuart Schrader, author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing from the University of California Press. During the Vietnam era was also the time we saw urban riots in the U.S. uh, And uh, the um, police response to that at first was very brutal and amateurish. So what did they learn uh, as the 60s went on? Starting in 1964, there were uprisings in in many cities among African-American populations. And as you say, the police response was brutal, violent. In most cases, not only was the initial incident that spawned these uprisings, an incident of police violence. But as soon as the people in these neighborhoods start to complain about the violent arrest, police suppress that protest with great vigor, and it just makes the protest worse. The classic example, the uprising in Harlem in 1964, starts with an off-duty police officer killing a black teenager, 
there are a few days of protests. There are, there are rallies, there are protests in upper Manhattan, and the police increasingly respond to the protest on the one hand with total intransigence. They're not willing to admit that anything that occurred uh, was a problem, and they're not willing to subject the, the officer who, who did the killing to any kind of review or, or censure. So the protesters don't stop protesting, um, and then the, the police uh, eventually respond with violence. And then once there starts to be this battle in the streets, the police become more and more and more violent. So they're, they're firing their guns. So the idea of shooting bullets into crowds as a way to get the crowds to stop being so angry is, is ludicrous. Of course, um, it's going to be terrifying and, and intimidating and lethal, but it doesn't make the crowds less angry. It makes them more angry. The folks I look at who are in the police assistance program overseas have a lot of experience with police who are firing their guns wildly into crowds because this has been going on all over the world. And so they advise, with not a great amount of success, they advise other countries, hey, look, if you're faced with, with a rebellious situation, your police shouldn't, shouldn't fire their guns in the crowds. They shouldn't use bayonets and so forth. Because it's going to delegitimize the government. It's going to make people more ma- more mad, more angry. And it's also going to p- create an opening for uh, communist propaganda. That They are consistently arguing that the communists are always looking for a martyr. And so if you kill somebody and you give the communists a martyr in, in a protest, then the communists will make a big deal out of this and be a propaganda victory for the communists. They introduce new forms of tear gas, new delivery methods for tear gas as a way to allow police and other countries to suppress crowds, suppress protests. Of course, in the United States, tear gas has been used before the 1964 to 1969 period, but its use is sporadic and inconsistent, and different agencies have different levels of access to it. After 1967, when the massive uprisings happen in Newark and Detroit, President Johnson appoints the Kerner Commission. And the Kerner Commission has as its investigator on issues of policing a guy who is well informed about what the United States is doing, has been doing in terms of police assistance abroad, whose name is Arnold Sagalin. And he is well aware of the use of tear gas in other countries. And so he brings Byron Engel, who is the director of the police assistance program, to testify before the Kerner Commission. The Kerner Commission is most famous for recommending that the Johnson administration try to alleviate poverty. Of course, the Johnson administration does not uh, take that, that recommendation on board. Johnson really doesn't want to hear it. But the Johnson administration does take on board a lot of the recommendations that come via Byron Engel, via Arnold Sagalin, about how police can change their posture toward protests and, and uprisings, or what they call civil disorders. And that means, again, not firing guns into crowds, not using bayonets, and adopting tear gas and, and these, these so-called less lethal technologies. So there's a pretty direct transfer of the ideas that the police assistance program is using overseas to try to help bolster the legitimacy of governments in in third world countries to the situation of controlling unrest in the United States. And the change is almost immediate. So the Kerner Commission report is issued at the end of February 1968. And by that time, there is already a national effort coordinated by the federal government, the Department of Justice, 
and organizations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police to change the overall approach that police use to protest to, again, use tear gas, specifically the chemical called CS, on a much greater scale. And the, the change is, is visible. Of course, in April of 1968, after Martin Luther King is assassinated, there are uprisings in many, many cities across the United States, and CS starts to be used on a, on a wide scale for, for the first time at, at, at that point. That's not to say that the use of CS means that there are no longer police firing their guns into crowds or being brutal or anything like that. In fact, it ends up being uh, one more kind of vector of brutality, um, especially because CS is itself such a strong and harsh chemical that um, creates really vicious effects in people who are exposed to it. From the police point of view, it's a much more effective form of brutality. Exactly, because on the one hand, it does work quite well at at dispersing crowds because the... The stuff is just so noxious. Yeah, the response to it when people encounter it is to just try to get away from it. But it also has an an effect of of being very intimidating. I mean, I, I think that, again... Getting fired at by police, no doubt, is is terrifying and intimidating. CS has the ability to both intimidate and to make it so that just being out in public and protesting becomes extremely unpleasant. And <laughs> I think people uh, try to change their tactics in, in response to it. And the kind of massive street protest that has been part of the cycle of uprisings after 64 for the next five years really starts to change once these these chemicals are introduced into the arsenal of, of police. There's an, uh, an argument that counterinsurgency was kind of a laboratory where they developed all these techniques that were then brought home and used for domestic policing. You argue that they evolved together, right? Yeah, I think that's right. They do evolve together in part because when the police assistance program is developed, first, it is developed, as I said, beginning in, in the 1950s, and this is before the, the, the term counterinsurgency itself really exists. Now, the idea of countering guerrilla warfare, of course, is, is a very old idea and has been a longstanding practice for both the, the U.S. military and many other colonial militaries around the globe. But the idea of putting police at the center of this project is a key shift that the United States makes over the course of the 20th century. When the United States had been engaging in counter-guerrilla warfare, say, in the Philippines after the, the turn of the century, the primary agency that the United States would use was, was the military, the, the army or the marines. But in the process, they, they also built up the Philippines' constabulary. Fast forward to the Cold War, the United States is not putting the military, its own military, on the ground in dozens of countries for the simple reason that most of these countries are now independent. The Philippines had been a colony. Independent countries around the globe are certainly not going to welcome the U.S. military um, into them. In some cases, they can't prevent the U.S. military from coming in. But the U.S. is able to sign these bilateral contracts with all these countries about helping them to develop their police resources. Part of what enables them to be able to sign these contracts is their diagnosis that these countries are at risk of insurgency. So on the one hand, the 
the U.S. intelligence apparatus plays a key role, and and the the police assistance program itself is part of the intelligence apparatus. Insofar as these U.S. police advisors are going and trying to figure out, okay, are the police up to the task of preventing revolution? Are the police uh, well endowed with with resources and skills and capabilities? And they are then usually able to say, well, of course they're not up to the task, so we are, we're going to provide you with with more resources. And they do this oftentimes in countries where police and military are not as as clearly defined as separate. So whereas in the United States, we have a kind of boundary between civilian police and the military, which oftentimes gets crossed, and a lot of people um, criticize that, that blurring of that boundary. In many of the countries where the United States is giving police aid, the military and the police are, are one and the same. So when they start talking about giving counterinsurgency resources to these other countries, they're trying to direct it toward the agencies that are going to be most engaged in the pacification of the radical and militant activities, mostly in urban urban zones. It's kind of a cliche now that you know, we've seen the militarization of the police forces, yeah. domestic police forces, over the last decade or two. But in fact, uh, these two have been uh, intertwined for quite a long time, right? Yeah, that's right. There, there are a couple points at which the so-called militarization of police, policing is usually dated. One is the 1990s when Bill Clinton starts to facilitate the transfer of greater amounts of, of military materials to police. Another is, is the 1960s, the end of the 1960s with the, with the creation of SWAT or Special Weapons and Tactics by the LAPD under Daryl Gates. And in the book... I throw a little bit of cold water on that kind of origin story, in part because I think that there is a much longer history of the kind of cross-fertilization of military and police. You have both on an individual level a lot of important police officials in the United States coming out of military backgrounds. Even if they don't have a military background, you have police leaders taking cues from the military in terms of trying to develop techniques of training and internal organizational structures, rank hierarchies, model on the military, as well as the very basic methods of patrol and training for searches and so forth that are based on prior military tactics. So that history is, is a long-standing history that goes back to, you know, crosses throughout the 20th century. When you get to the period of the Cold War and the period that I'm looking at in the book, we see that on the one hand, some of the missions are blurring together on the ground in various countries around the globe between military and police. You have uh, military engaging in the types of everyday searches and um, rounding up of suspects that, that we would associate with police activity. And you have police adopting greater and greater amounts of military-style weaponry and so forth. Um, so, so you see that, that blurring in the Cold War period, but at the same time, you also see that on a bureaucratic level, each is trying to insist that they're distinct from one another. And the reason is, is just simple bureaucratic competition. If, if the military and police assistance operations of the United States are indistinguishable, well, then any kind of budget-cutting bureaucrat is going to say, if these are duplicating each other, why do we need both? So, so each side is trying to insist they, they do something unique, distinct from the other, that one can't replace the other. In the, the analysis that I do, looking at the police assistance program, 
um, a consistent thread in their own justifications and explanations for what they're doing is to say, we are not military, we offer a a different type of skill set. At the same time, many of the people involved in, in the program themselves have military backgrounds. Many of them have come up through the special warfare training that comes out of the World War II experience. So no matter how much they protest that the, that the two are distinct, it's clear that, that the two are, are blurring together. I resist the term militarization of policing for exactly this reason, that it sort of implies a, a period when there was a pure... It's like a fall from innocence or something. Exactly, exactly. There, there, there was no, no period when we can look back to to say, aha, the military was over here, the police was over here, and they were distinct and separate, and something went wrong when they started to blur together. Uh, in fact, throughout the 20th century, as I said, they've, they've constantly been blurring, and, and there's, there's all different ways that they, they've blurred together. And the notion that the police have become militarized has actually been oftentimes a self-serving justification for the the demand for resources. So Daryl Gates kind of creates this argument in the 1990s at at the sort of second moment that we often hear as a a signal moment of militarization of policing. Daryl Gates creates this this narrative in the 1990s that he started to militarize policing with the creation of SWAT in the 1960s. And it's really an argument about the 1990s rendered through a, a historical narration of the 1960s. So I try to, to look back at what exactly was Daryl Gates doing when, when he claimed to be militarizing the police in, in Los Angeles. And what I find is that, yes, Gates most likely is in touch with some counterinsurgency experts at, at, at this moment of the end of the 1960s, but um, the LAPD itself has already been operating around the globe Many of the officers who worked under Gates are already linked with the police assistance program overseas. So the idea that all of a sudden, after the Watts Rebellion in the late 1960s, Gates discovers counterinsurgency and brings a kind of military lens to policing in L.A. is really misleading because many of his uh, subordinate officers or colleagues are already in touch with and working alongside the police who are working overseas under the guise of counterinsurgency. I was Stuart Schrader, author of Badges Without Borders from the University of California Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a song I learned about on Stuart Schrader's music site, whose name I can't say on the radio. This badge means you suck, from the early 1980s Houston punk band AK-47. Till next week, bye.